You're listening to the Psych Central Podcast, where guest experts in the field of psychology and mental health share thought-provoking information using plain, everyday language. Here's your host, Gabe Howard. Welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Podcast. Calling into the show today, we have Dr. Robert Duff. Robert is a licensed clinical psychologist and is the author of the popular Hardcore Self-Help book series. He's also a fellow podcaster, hosting the Hardcore Self-Help Podcast, a weekly show where he answers listeners' mental health questions and interviews interesting guests. Dr. Duff, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Today, we're going to discuss anxiety in the modern age, and more specifically, how things like technology and social media impact our anxiety and stress levels. I think that most people don't realize that our modern world is causing us stress in other ways than just, you know, work relationship and children. Yeah, I, I think at the very least, it's different. I wouldn't say better or worse, but certainly the internet and definitely social media, I think are kind of some of the biggest changes to society and the way that we interact since, I don't know, the industrial revolution or the printing press or something like that. So absolutely, it's different. It seems like if you read back through history, every new thing was going to be the end of the world. <laughs> And I remember reading about the printing press and how the printing press was going to destroy the world as we know it. And it was fascinating to read because, of course, we all love the printing press. We think that the printing press is one of the greatest revolutions in the world. And yet at the time, it was very much maligned as being a bad thing. Which leads me to my question, is that this? Are people just saying, oh no, social media and technology is the downfall of the world and it, it, it's sort of, you know, the sky is falling syndrome? I think that people can fall on either side of it. Sometimes people think that it's a very, very, very negative thing. For me, I'm like, well, it doesn't matter either way. It is what it is. And sort of growing up in this period of time, I think that one of our major for lack of a better term, developmental tasks is to figure out how to manage all this stuff because there's just a lot. The jump up from the printing press gives you access to information that you never had before. And this is that like times a gazillion. So there's just a lot in knowing what to do with that, how to manage that, I think is a really, really, really important thing. Social media is just, it gets blamed for everything it seems nowadays. What role does social media play in anxiety in 2020? There's good and bad and neutral. You know, it, it is what it is. I think that one of the good things about it is that you have unprecedented access to connecting with people and finding resources. If you're to go on Twitter, say, and say, hey, I'm having extreme anxiety. Can somebody help me out? And a bunch of people are going to come and they're going to send you resources. That's how a lot of people find my books and stuff like that, for instance. So there's, it's, it's a great way to connect with people. It's a great way to find resources. It also, though, feeds into sort of the compulsive nature of anxiety. With anxiety, you tend to get this sense of unease. Like you want to know the answer, <laughs> whether that's, is this situation dangerous or what's going on in the world or how does this person feel about me? You really, really, really want to know the answer to that. And social media gives you a way to either get those answers or at least fulfill some of that compulsive desire to do that. So when you want to know what's going on in the world, all you have to do is refresh your social feed and you see the news there. These days, a lot of people, myself included, don't even turn on the TV or go to CNN.com when we want to get news. I just go to Twitter and see what's trending. And that's going to help me understand in the immediate right now sense what's going on, which is a good thing and a bad thing. I always tell people, your knowledge of what's happening in this moment, especially if it's something like a natural disaster, a shooting, a political event, something like that, your knowledge of it 
does not change the fact that it's happening at all. But there's this, with how much information is available, there's this weird guilt that sort of sets in where if you don't know what's happening in that exact moment, you feel bad about that or disconnected somehow. And so, you know, by refreshing your feed, by checking those things, it relieves some of that. It relieves some of that tension, which is going to lead you to do that more and more and more. So it can become a thing that's just so absent-minded. You're constantly either checking notifications, which is a whole different story, or just refreshing social feeds, trying to see what's going on. And that can certainly play into anxiety, especially if it's an issue that you already have. It's fascinating that you talked about refreshing the social feed to learn what's going on to release anxiety. On one hand, I completely agree with you. I have done it. I I have sat there on my phone when something, a big event has happened and I've just hit refresh, 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 you know, going through like four different websites going on, like you said, Twitter or Facebook to see what other people are saying or what other people are posting. And in that moment, I feel less anxious because after all, I'm up to date. Right, right. But then again, I'm I'm completely enmeshed in it. Right. I'm I'm not doing anything else. I'm not focused on anything else. I'm letting other things like work, family, friendships, joy go because I'm just I'm so engrossed in this story. And then I often learn whether it be days, weeks or months later that some of the information I got was just false. Sure. There's so much pressure to have the scoop that people say The police questioned Gabe Howard. He's a suspect. And in the meantime, (laughs) Gabe Howard was the Jimmy John's delivery guy. And now the whole world believes that the poor Jimmy John's delivery guy is involved, which I imagine creates even more anxiety. How does that all flow together? The the other thing to think about with this is is how it doesn't allow you to turn off. With anxiety, a lot of people, their brain is already going to be searching for signs of danger, answers to things. It's going to be sort of always on. And it's an active effort to try to get that to slow down, to rest, to recuperate. Sustained anxiety over time is really exhausting. And then you integrate something like this where you're tra- you're getting the immediate information that's constantly changing. So you have to keep up with it. I can recall just recently, semi-recently, I live in the area of California that has all the wildfires, these really big fires that have happened. And one of them that was closest to us happened while my wife was asleep, but I was still awake. And I had to really make the choice of, okay, do I wake her up and let her know what's happening just because she needs to know with the knowledge that that's going to keep her up all night because she's going to be doing that refresh and continuing to look and continue to get that? Or do I wait till there's a need to know part of the information? Because really, for all practical purposes, it wasn't affecting us yet at that point. And the information was only going to be more solid later on. But you really, 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 really want to know. And that the anxiety is going to fuel that because it's going to say, hey, I'm trying to keep you safe. The best thing you can do here is gather all this information, try to figure out every aspect of it, and then also avoid things that would actually make a difference or make, make you involved somehow. So it definitely plays into it. But at the very least, I think we need to pay attention to how it affects us. And one of my biggest sort of takeaways for people is that you need to start building some self-awareness about how social media plays out for you. For different people, it's going to have a different level of impact. For me, it may not be quite as big as somebody like, like I said, my wife, she's somebody that openly struggles with anxiety. It has a big effect on her. And so knowing when to invite that in, when to not invite that in, I think that's a skill that we all sort of need to build at this point. I'm thinking of my own social media use. Sure. And I I got sucked in by everything. I had the notifications on. So when something happened, there was a ding. I had the Mm -hmm. emails that came in and uh, 
this is the thing that I'm most ashamed of. I wanted to earn all of the badges. Social media does a really good job of telling you that you're a top poster, you're a top fan, you've you've made one verified. update a day every day for a hundred days, or yeah, verified is, is mm-hmm. a big one. I wanted to earn, and I'm using that word earn. I wanted to earn them all. But I've since learned, as as comes with you know maturity and age and better understanding, that I wasn't earning anything. It was a false reward. I think many people are stuck in this trap where they think they're accomplishing something, but in reality, you're you're not accomplishing anything. Yeah, definitely. And the checking nature of social media with anxiety, you're taking away that unease of not knowing what's going on. But then. On top of that, there's also positive reinforcement. You're getting hearts, you're getting likes, you're getting badges, you're getting these things. And they are just quick little hits of of essentially dopamine that are reinforcing you for that behavior. And it's built that way. That's why Facebook is such a huge monster that can charge so much for ads and make so much money because everything is just built on that. It's it's like Vegas. You know, you have this positive reinforcement, you have the light, you have the ding, you have the money payout, you have all these things that kind of keep you going and keep you going. And so I think that's definitely important to recognize that it's designed to make you compulsive. That doesn't mean it's a terrible thing in and of itself, but just like when you walk into a store and you see all the ads and promotions and things like that, you got to at least know that they're trying to sell you and that's going to at least help you take things with a grain of salt. I do think that people understand that the stores, the televisions are trying to sell you. Do you think that people understand that Facebook and other social media sites are trying to sell you? Do you think that people understand that they are a consumer of these products? And do you think that that understanding or lack of understanding contributes to anxiety? That's an interesting question. I think that one thing that Facebook and the social media platforms do really well is they get to know you. You give them permission to. You give them a lot of your information. And so things start to become very tailored to you. You know, you hear those stories about, oh, I was like talking over dinner about getting a new vacuum and suddenly I see ads for new vacuums. So I mean, I think that people do know that they're being sold to. However, it is worked in in a very sort of contextual way where sometimes you don't even notice it. But I, I have kind of mixed feelings about, I'm getting a little bit off topic with this, but the idea of sort of your social media feed becoming a bit of a bubble that's very tailored toward you. It, it depends on what you're using it for. But for some people, maybe social media plays a great role in broadening your perspective. For other people, I think there's nothing necessarily wrong with controlling what you see there. For ads or for different types of posts, you can block, you can say, I don't want to see this type of content. You can sort of curate your social media feed to be something that works for you instead of against you. Somebody who has, say, depression, they might want to intentionally remove some of the things that are maybe a little bit more pessimistic. They may want to bring in things that are a lot more the sort of positive content that's going to help them at least have a tiny boost throughout their day that will inspire them. And I don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with that. I think a lot of people feel like there is, though. They feel like, oh, well, I can't just like make myself in my own little bubble because then I'm not seeing what's going on on the other side. It's a tool. It's a tool that you can use however you want to, but that's something that you do have some degree of control over. I know that you talk a lot about fake productivity or false productivity. It's this, mm-hmm. it's this idea where you think you're accomplishing something, but you're not. Can you explain what fake productivity is? So for me, the way that I see this the most is with not necessarily social media, but like apps. There are 
gazillions of apps out there and they're all trying to be the perfect tool for this thing, whether it's a to-do list or a calendar app or tracking your period or exercise, whatever it is, there's a million options for each of those things. And one thing that a lot of people do is fall down this rabbit hole of searching for the perfect tool. Oh, this one doesn't have this feature. Okay, let's keep looking. Okay, this one has a lot of great features, but not quite this one. This one's too expensive. And you keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. And at the end of the day, whatever the tool is supposed to help you with, you did nothing related to that thing. You don't have your to-do list made. Your calendar isn't updated. So you kind of spent a bunch of time going down this rabbit hole of trying to be sold on the perfect tool and didn't actually do anything with it. And for people who have anxiety, so with anxiety the thing I always say is that avoidance is the fuel of anxiety. Anxiety tells you to avoid something so that it can, it can keep you safe. And then when you do avoid that thing, it gets bigger and more present. So you avoid more and more and more. And then suddenly you're having a really hard time. And I think that one sort of insidious thing that can happen is that we turn this search for perfect tool into a form of avoidance. If you're just planning and looking for the right thing and doing all this top level stuff, you don't actually have to take action because action is scary. And so you can use that as a form of avoidance and just kind of keep doing this over and over again. But you're not actually achieving anything. And at some point you realize this, it really does seem like this self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm anxious because I'm productive. Now I'm anxious because I'm realized I'm not productive, but I can be productive by doing what is effectively nothing. But if I don't do it, I become anxious. But if I do do it, I become anxious. I just, (laughs) I'm having like a really hard time getting out of the feedback loop of what do I do so that I am productive, well-informed, and I don't have this sudden fear that I, I don't fit into society and that I'm just one of these curmudgeonly people on my porch saying, social media is gonna kill us all. This whole conversation is making me anxious because I honestly don't know what to do. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's anxiety itself, though, right? Right. Whether it's it's social media or anything else, I think that the thing that the internet does and social media does is provide like a big sort of magnifying glass or megaphone for those things that are already tendencies you have. The answer is really trying to build self-awareness of your patterns, right? And especially understanding the way that your patterns interact with these new tools that are available. Best way I think to do that is, is... talking with people, trusted loved ones, your therapist, whoever, also journaling. That's like a form of self-therapy and and sort of self-monitoring of, okay, right down at the end of the day, what did I do today and how did it affect me? I spent six hours diving down this rabbit hole of trying to find the perfect tools and all my apps are set up pretty and all these things, but I haven't done anything. And now I feel bad about that. And I feel anxious that I wasted time and I have less time tomorrow to do all these things. Write those things out so you can at least understand your patterns and use that information to adjust your approach. I'm a big fan of using both online and offline things. Open in front of my face right now, I have an Evernote document with some notes from when you asked me questions beforehand for this interview. I also have my Google Keep, which has like my whole to-do list. But I also got a stupid little index card in front of me. If I think of something and I don't have time to get to the to-do list, I'm just going to write it down there. We'll be right back after these messages. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face session. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central. And we're back discussing anxiety in the digital age with Dr. Robert Duff. 
I certainly don't think that the solution here is to cancel all of your social media, never read the news, never get on email, never prepare. Like you talked about the extremes. How does one make sure that they're staying in the middle? Because I, I imagine that that moderation, that middle, that average is where the least amount of anxiety comes in. Yeah, I think a lot of it is about sort of setting limits for yourself and having some boundaries with yourself. At this point, I think it's really unrealistic to tell people to say, okay, you're only allowed to do these actions at this time. Like you're only allowed to engage with social media at this time. That's kind of pushing against a, a really strong beast. Unless social media isn't even a big thing for you. There's plenty of people out there where they're like, oh, well, I don't even have a Facebook. It's not a big deal. But insert whatever it is, checking email, checking the news, what, what have you. It's easier though to block out times that are sacred, times that you're not doing that actively disconnecting from the world. And I think that's really important in terms of like, especially things like sleep, being able to sleep and turn off for the night. Massively important when you're dealing with mental health issues, both in terms of memory and learning the skills that you're trying to, to work on and build and just giving you enough energy to, to get back out there and fight a little bit of the uphill battle that you've been fighting. So I'm a big fan of sort of book ending the day is what I call it. So the, the beginning of the day, first half hour or so, last hour of the day, disconnecting from the world, putting the phone away. And I really am a big fan of not even having your phone in the bedroom because uh, so many people, last thing they see before they close their eyes is their phone, email or social media feed. Then they close their eyes. If they wake up in the middle of the night, drink water, they're going to be checking their social media feed again or their email. They wake up in the morning. What's the first thing they see? They pull that out again. And really, I think that there are very, very, very few instances where that's going to be a great thing. It could be neutral. It could not affect you very much. And there's a pretty significant chance that it's going to derail you. If you're going to see something that pisses you off, something that scares you, something that you forgot about for work or whatever, you know, last thing you need is to wake up in the middle of the night and see a work email. Okay, bye-bye sleep. So I, I'm a big fan of in the morning, kind of taking some time before you even pull out your phone, get, make yourself some coffee, take a few deep breaths, write some thoughts down if you have them, do whatever you want to do with that, and then pull that out. And at the end of the night, focus inward, do some journaling. Like I said, you can do some stretching or foam rolling or deep breathing or just enjoy an offline activity um, like we used to do in the olden days and try to come <laughs> down a little bit and disconnect from the world so that you can drift off into restorative sleep, not having your brain running a million miles per hour. When I am in a hotel, when I travel, I keep my phone next to me because it's my alarm clock. And every single time I get up to go to the bathroom, because that phone is sitting next to my bed, I check it. Now, fortunately, 90% of the time, there's nothing on there. But 10% of the time, there's something. Yeah. There's something. And I'm, I'm up the rest of the night. And I think that people need to realize this. Now, what do you say to the people who are going to immediately fire back? Well, I have to. I yeah. have to keep the phone next to my bed because I have teenage children are out or my spouse works nights and might need to call. I am the emergency contact for my mother or, of course, my personal favorite. It's my alarm clock and there's just no way around that. <laughs> yeah, those are all very anxious responses, right? You know, uh, oh, my God, what if this? What if that? Um there are ways around that. Like they still make alarm clocks. I have yeah. one. It, it's really annoying. I have to put it on the other side of the room. So I actually have to physically get up and walk over there. Otherwise I'll just turn over and hit it with my hand. So you we know, may still... be soulmates. I, I just, <laughs> yes, I, I do the exact same thing. <laughs> I've always had to, cause I, I'm my, my brain will create a scenario where there's like a nuclear launch happening and I have to hit this button to stop it. And that's the alarm <laughs> clock. And so my brain will troll me and, and it just won't work. So I have to actually physically get up. 
Um, but yeah, they make real alarm clocks, you know. And then in terms of the other concerns about what if there's an emergency, etc., there's a variety of ways around that. There are things like uh, maybe you have your Apple Watch in the room if you have Apple products, but not your phone. Or you keep it outside the room, but you, you keep it on Do Not Disturb, and you can sort of have your specifications. So if somebody calls you, it'll ring loudly. I mean, that's outside the room, but you'll still be able to hear it. There's a variety of ways to do it. If you have teenage kids that are out for the night, maybe that's the night you make an exception and you try to be responsible with it uh, as responsible as you can, not keep it right next to the bed, but that's your kind of exception for the week and the rest of the week, you're not going to have it in there. So you can do a lot with it. And those are usually just sort of knee-jerk reactions. I get that sort of knee-jerk reaction from people a lot too when I'm talking about setting limits on social media, even taking breaks from social media, things like this. And they say, well, it's my job. I need to be on it. There's, there's definitely usually a little more wiggle room than you think there as well. I really feel like this all does boil down to making healthy choices and sticking to them. And and I really think this is a good analogy. The people who say that they don't have time to exercise and the people that say that they have to be on social media. But of course, one of the things that you can do to exercise is park at the back of the parking lot and walk forward. You can take the steps instead of the elevator. So you can turn off social media during dinner. Right. Do you believe that finding those tiny little things, because in the grand scheme, those are small things. But it sounds like you're saying those will pay big dividends when it comes to lessening our anxiety. I feel like just exercising control over it is is a good practice, right? Intentionally putting it away sometimes, intentionally having it out sometimes. If you're feeling that discomfort, much like if you walk out the door and you realize your phone's not in your pocket, you get this sense of discomfort these days, like, oh God, something's wrong. Um, a lot of people feel that way if they're not able to immediately check their phone. You know, If they're at dinner and they're feeling a buzz in their pocket or whatever, you, you have that, that sense of discomfort. So learning how to sort of modulate that and, and do it intentionally. You know, I'm going to put my phone away or I'm going to log off or not check these things for this period of time at least gives you the flexibility to say, okay, sometimes I'm on, sometimes I'm off. And that's a practice I think that people need to need to do. You know, we have all these coping skills, mindfulness, you know, all these different things that that we use in the mental health field. I think that this is just a simply another one of those things, sort of like technological flexibility or something, the ability to just decide when you're on and when you're off. And that's a hard thing to do when the structure is is designed to make you on all the time but you need to wrest some control back from that. Otherwise, you're going to be worn out. I hear a lot of what you're saying, and I completely agree with it. And I know that making more intentional decisions about our social media and about our use of technology will make us feel better. But do you think that there is a role in that when we're staring at our phones, there's often people in the room, and, and those people are our friends, our families, our loved ones, and they maybe don't feel so good about it, and they're probably giving us pushback, whether straight up, put your phone down, or passive aggressive, well, I'm not going to tell you, you care more about your phone, or whatever. Do you, do you think that keeping them happy also lowers your anxiety? And I, I know keeping them happy is kind of a weird way to say it, but I, in sure. the beginning, I, I got a lot of negative pushback from my friends and family, which also made me more anxious. And when I got better control over my phone and social media use, a lot of that went away, which of course made me less anxious. Yeah, I think so. You know, I mean, and also you're making the assumption that the other person isn't also on their phone and then sure. suddenly you're just both disconnected, sort of doing parallel life next to each other. 
communication is something that is is still really important, you know, and you could be communicating with people online. I, th- I think that's valid, but you also need to communicate with people in person. And when couples are having trouble in you know, my clinical practice, a lot of things, a lot of times I ask, like, do you guys eat dinner together? Like, do you sit across from each other and eat dinner? And a lot of times the answer is no, or we sit side by side, we're on our phones, whatever the case may be. And, and it's like, okay, well, then you're, you're robbing yourself of the chance to practice communicating with one another and getting that support from one another. And yeah, I think I think that definitely accessing the supports that you have and and treating them well is is really important. That it's a whole piece of the puzzle along with all the other things that you might do to help relieve your anxiety. So, I definitely agree with you there. I could talk to you about this all day because people seem to be more anxious than ever. People seem to be more disconnected than ever at a time that we should be more connected than ever. But the specific question that I want to ask you really involves a story with my grandfather. One morning, my grandfather comes downstairs. He's staying at my house and he sees my wife and I sitting at the breakfast table and we're both on our phones. And And he says, oh, this is the problem with your generation. You're you're staring at your phones. You're not talking to one another. Uh, you know, in my day, we didn't have this. We we actually talked to each other. And, <laughs> and for the rest of that day, I, I felt a little bad. I was like, oh my God, this is my wife. I love her. And he's right. I'm ignoring her. And Then the next morning, I come downstairs and my grandmother and grandfather are sitting at the table and my grandfather's reading the paper. Yeah. And my grandmother is doing the crossword puzzle, completely ignoring each other. Yeah. And I said, ah, this is the problem with your generation, completely ignoring each other for (laughs) newsprint. Yeah. It seems like it's very much the same thing. We've seen couples sit at the breakfast table, ignoring each other since the beginning of time, but it does seem like technology is way more intrusive than the morning newspaper routine. Can you talk about that for a moment? Because again, I think it's one of those excuses. Oh, I'm on my phone, but my grandfather was on his newspaper. Yeah. People have always found ways to sort of disconnect and go into their own world. And I don't want to place a value judgment on any of this. Like if they're happy, these things are only a problem when they're a problem, right? If you're realizing that these things are creating a sense of disconnection in your relationship or creating a sense of anxiety or messing with your sleep, that's when you need to do something about it. If not, and if you're satisfied and happy, that's fine. You know, certainly there are times where what my wife wants to do is sit next to me and be on her phone, not talk to me because she wants to be in my presence, but she's super introverted and just doesn't want to people right then, you know? And, (laughs) and that's okay. That's okay. But when it crosses into interfering with things, that's, I think where you need to pay attention. And so this is just the next platform for that and things that you need to to consider related to this platform. I, I do think that the intensity is higher, right? You're right. Uh, there's a big difference between having a book or a crossword or newspaper than having this endless stream of information. And the default is to have all these notifications on, which I don't think you should have, where it's just constantly pulling your attention out of the present moment. And, and I think that in addition to the relationship part, the sort of regular life part, I think that we need to reclaim our ability to like do deep work and focus on something without being distracted by all these other things. And so that's another part where I think that training that skill of being able to turn on and off really matters when you're having a conversation with someone or when you're writing a paper or when you're working on some sort of brainstorming project, you should be able to start that and put the work in without having to be pulled away constantly by these other things. If you can't do that and it's, and it's kind of you know, messing with your productivity or your relationship, that's where you need to maybe take a close look at how these things are affecting you and what you could do about that. Robert, thank you so very much. But how do people find you? What's your website? Where can they get your podcast? Where are your books? Let our listeners know exactly how to track you down. 
Sure. So my sort of online persona is, is called Duff the Psych. So if you, a good place to start is duffthepsych.com slash start here. That has sort of like my greatest hits. So it has you know information about my books, which are called the Hardcore Self-Help Books. I have one about anxiety, one about depression. It has some of my most popular podcast episodes, a, a TEDx talk that I did, all sorts of things like that. So that's sort of like a great starting place. And then if you want to uh, reach out to me or connect on social media, I'm on basically all platforms at Duff the Psych. Robert, thank you so much again for being here. Totally my pleasure. Thank you. And listen up, listeners. Here's what I need you to do. Wherever you found this podcast, please subscribe and review it and use your words. Tell people why you like us. Share us on social media. And if you are a fan of social media, we have a super secret Facebook group that you can join. Just go to psychcentral.com slash FB show. And remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere, simply by visiting betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. We will see everybody next week listening to the Psych Central Podcast. Want your audience to be wowed at your next event? Feature an appearance and live recording of the Psych Central Podcast right from your stage. For more details or to book an event, please email us at show at psychcentral.com. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. Psych Central is the internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website run by mental health professionals. Overseen by Dr. John Grohall, Psych Central offers trusted resources and quizzes to help answer your questions about mental health, personality, psychotherapy, and more. Please visit us today at psychcentral.com. To learn more about our host, Gabe Howard, please visit his website at gabehoward.com. Thank you for listening, and please share with your friends, family, and followers.